Welcome back to Christianity 101. This is lesson three, the creation of man and his threefold nature. I'm going to pray because we should pray before we get into this one. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for our curriculum on Christianity 101. I ask you for the spirit of wisdom and understanding in our revelation and knowledge of this subject. Help the student here, Lord. Help the new member. Help the new believer. Help me to teach this, and may we come away with a greater understanding of how you have designed us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this is Lesson 3, The Creation of Man and His Threefold Nature. It's critical we understand how God has made us to be. My background is science, and so I have found that when you understand how things work, how they're designed, how they're created, you can figure out how to break things. And if you know how to break things, then you'll stay far away from breaking them. If you understand how they work, you know how to put them back together should they break. You'll understand the limitations. And so all this is, uh, is important in understanding the subject of our creation and understanding how God made us to be. And so that's the subject of this lesson. Our curriculum says God created man. We believe this to be very much true. I'm a geologist by nature or by education, and so I'm very much aware of the doctrines or the hypotheses of evolution. And there's natural selection, there's punctuated equilibrium, there's all these different flavors of evolution. I want you to know that even as a geologist, I have zero faith, zero belief in evolution as an explanation for the creation of man. All you have to do is have a baby as in like literally you and your wife have a baby, or if you're the woman, you have a baby. And you can understand truly what the psalmist meant when he said, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Even the psalmist said, do you know how the bones form in the womb? No, we, we don't. We get this now through, through cellular biology and mitosis and meiosis. But how in the world a sperm comes together, that's a single cell, and it comes together with an egg from a woman's ovary and the two come together and they begin to split which I think that's meiosis don't hold me there I'm a geologist not a biologist and they begin to multiply and multiply and multiply and multiply splitting 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 exponentially and certain cells peel off and begin to multiply multiply until they become heart cells and the heart cells develop into a heart and then other cells split off and multiply and multiply until they become liver cells or lung cells or cell skin cells or bone cells. And then they multiply and multiply until it grows. And then all of a sudden, a cell peels off and starts to form eyeballs. Seriously? Do you know the biology behind your eyeballs? That the back of your eyeballs, retina, cornea, again, geology, not biology, the cells at the back of your eyeballs are filled with chemicals that react with light in a millionth of a second to, to process color. And so the second you look away, they've already refreshed. It's like a refresh rate on the television. They refresh to process a different color. As fast as you can look or as fast as a video game can flash it, they can process. And the chemical reaction with the color of light sends a signal to your brain to register red, white, blue, green, purple, three dimensions, two dimensions, one dimension. All this started with one sperm hitting one egg. And now science tells us they've actually captured the moment 
It's only been captured. Uh, the last article I read about a year ago, they've only captured it on film seven or eight times. But the second the sperm hits the egg, they've visually recorded with a camera in the womb, or I guess I, guess I should say the fallopian tube, the moment of conception, and there's literally a flash of light. The, the reaction, the implantation, causes a miniature flash of light that they've captured on film. I don't know, it kind of sounds like God to me. God said, let there be, and there was. He is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the earth, John chapter 1. So God created man. And honestly, to think evolution developed this. You've got this baby growing in you now as a woman. And at the same time this baby is growing in you, your body is not attacking it as a parasite or as a tumor or as an infection. Your body temperature is not producing a fever to kill this baby. Your body understands that hormones start being produced. Hormones are released that cause the woman's hips to widen that cause the breast to begin to develop milk and then once the baby is born and delivered another chemical is triggered that causes milk to come in that has all the antibodies and I don't even know it all it's so infinite you can't keep track of all of it fearfully and wonderfully made and yet people choose to believe we evolved from monkeys and if that's the case I want to know where my tail still is because I could sure use a a third appendage from time to time. Uh, you know, we got, or I guess really a fifth one. You got two legs and two arms. Give me a tail. I could usually, I could use that to do something with. See, this just doesn't make any sense. Man is not the result of evolution, not macro, not micro or natural selection. Man is God's finest creation. And he formed man from the dust of the earth. Then he breathed into man the breath of life. And then he took woman out of man and built woman so that truthfully you women I personally believe you are even more created even more wisely built if 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 anything could be added to man it was woman she was taken out of man and built not formed two different words describe how man was designed versus how woman was designed man was formed of the dust of the earth but woman was built from the rib and so we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 through 28. I want to read this to you describing our creation by God. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them, notice that there when God made man, he made man a them because in man was male and female. In the beginning, man was both male and female. Nothing weird, but the creation had not been separated yet woman was taken out of man and then built and represented back to man as wife and the two become one flesh by intimacy by sexual intimacy and so we see a return to one flesh which is what they originally were when God made man and let them them plural have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Notice the constant going back and forth of nouns and pronouns. Male and female created he them. God created man in his image. And in the image of God created he him, that is man, 
male and female created he them. And God blessed them and God said unto them, here's the first commandment, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. The first commandment is to be fruitful and multiply, have children. Now in this day and age, postmodern America, we're having less and less children. We actually, I, I just saw an article this week that said America has now surpassed a mile mark of secularism. We now are having less children than are dying, which means our population will now begin to shrink. It's, that's the European model. That is a hallmark of secularism, which means we'll only continue to grow through immigration or through other populations having an exponential birth rate like Muslims. Muslims average eight children per household. Americans average one and a half which means our population will continue to diminish. The first commandment was be fruitful and multiply. There was a meme I saw that said, your great-grandmother was one of 12 brothers and sisters. Your grandmother was one of six brothers and sisters. Your mother was one of four brothers and sisters. You are one of two siblings, and you have a cat. <laughs> you see, that kind of succinctly describes the American family experience. Large families trickling down, trickling down, trickling down. And to where now modern people, they don't even want to get married. They don't want kids. They want a dog and a cat and fur babies and want to be a dog dad. That's weird. God said, be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth. Subdue the earth. Don't try to save it. Subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea. Not be a fur baby to them or fur daddy. And over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. We're to have dominion over them and subdue it. Even now with the whole animal thing. If you'll notice if you watch these dog shows, these dog competitions. They don't call it their master. They'll call it their person. They'll say things like, look at that beautiful uh, Alaskan Malamute and her person. Why not her master? Well, because... That implies ownership, and we don't want to hurt the dog's feelings. And that dog is somebody else's dinner somewhere else in the earth tonight. The Bible shows how God created us. He created us to have dominion over every creeping thing, every fowl of the air, every beast of the field, every fish of the sea, and it's for food. It's to be dominated. It's to be subdued because we're the chief principal creation. Amen. Look at Psalms 8. We see something there about where the Lord ranks us in his creation. Psalm chapter 8, the creation of man. Psalm 8, verse 3. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. So notice, we're much higher than the animals, but we've been made a little lower than the angels. And you have crowned us with glory and honor. You made us to have a dominion over the works of your hands. Thou hast put all things under our feet, all sheep and oxen, yes, and the beasts of the field. Here's a great lie with this whole fur baby movement. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about where... Americans in the West have exalted animals above their God-ordained position. So that now, I think another statistic I recently heard said 90% of Americans consider their pets as members of their family. I take a serious 
contention with that because the Bible says, put all things under our feet. Now, if it's a member of my family, it's going to be an heir apparent to my lineage, to my inheritance, to my calling. If I mock God by saying little Fifi is a member of my family, then I am disavowing my faith in verse 6, which says all things, all creations, all works of God's hand are under my feet, including my schnauzer Fifi. I don't have a schnauzer, and if I did, I wouldn't name her Fifi. But even Christians, maybe even you, you are beginning to encroach upon Romans 1 that says they worship the creation more than the creator. In our nation, we now abort babies and imprison people who abuse pets. And you just go ahead and shoot a dog and cook it in your backyard, your neighbor catch you, you will go to jail for that. But you could go down to Planned Parenthood and abort as many babies as you want, and nobody will have a problem with that. The government will fund that. It's slow antichrist behavior. All sheep, oxen, yes, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. We have been created, and everything else God has made has been put under us. And we don't have permission from God to exalt a beast of the field not to exalt a cow like the Hindus do or to exalt a cat like the pharaohs did or to exalt a dog like Americans do. These are not members of our family. They are pets. We are their owners. They don't have a place in family according to the Bible and they don't take the place of children. It mocks God for you to call your pet a fur baby. That is disgusting. That is disgusting. And it borders on the heart behind bestiality. I don't know how in the world we're descending into this subject and teaching on the creation of man and his threefold nature, but maybe it's because mankind has forgotten where God ordained us to be. Maybe we've believed the propaganda of the enemy that would try to bring us down to make us equal with beasts when God has exalted us and placed us just a little lower than the angels, but much higher than four-footed animals that the Lord told Peter, arise, kill, and eat. But the heart behind bestiality is that you would make love to an animal like you would a human being. And the attitude I see in America, which has slowly evolved, even from the time I was a kid growing up in the country on farms, we went from shooting an animal when it needed to be put down and nobody thought twice about it, to now if you do that, the police are called on you. We have slowly exalted animals to where they're members of our family, and the next step will encroach upon personhood, which some states are already fighting for. There's already court cases about giving personhood to things like chimpanzees and other animals. And if they obtain personhood, then you will be justified, if you're weird like this, in having a romantic, intimate relationship with it. Dr. Lester Sumrall, who was my, one of my greatest faith heroes, he had a vision in the 1950s, and the last thing he saw in this vision, other than pagan religions coming to America, homosexuality becoming standardized, homosexuals being able to marry each other, which was unheard of in the 1950s, the last thing he saw come before he saw a revival finally hit, he saw bestiality becoming very commonplace in America. The heart is already there. 
and the seeds for it have already been sown. I preach against this on a regular basis in our church because it's idolatry. And no Christian has any place in idolatry. In fact, First John concludes, last verse of chapter 5 says, My little children flee idolatry. Your pet can be an idol. You were created much higher than that, and you're designed to find fellowship with the Holy Ghost and to find fellowship with the body of Christ. And if you can't find fellowship with either one of those, you must be born again. Don't fall into this weird, dark, perverse trap of having your best friend be a four-footed fur baby. Ooh. Let's continue on with our curriculum. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, God has created man as a three-part being. God has created man as a three-part being, and we need to understand this. This, is, this was a great mystery uh, hidden for, for centuries and really only began to be rediscovered a hundred years ago by a man named Dr. Clarence Larkin who wrote some masterpiece work on eschatology. It really wasn't picked up much for another 70 years after that till Brother Kenneth Hagin and Dr. Lester Sumrall really began to teach mainstream spirit, soul, and body. For the longest time, it was just believed that man was a, ma a body and a soul, and soul was eternal and body was temporal. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 reveals to us that man is three parts. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly or completely, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice Paul in praying for the body of believers at Thessalonica. He said they had three parts that he prayed for, that God would preserve their spirit their soul, and their body and preserve them blameless into the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we need to understand this, that we are not just a spirit. We're not just a body, but we are spirit. First and foremost, we, we are a spirit. That's a part of you that lives forever. We possess a soul and we inhabit a body. Uh, the, the soul is what's being renewed day by day. The body is the last thing to be saved. The spirit man is what got born again in the new birth when old things passed away and all things became new and all things were of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But what we're dealing with now is our soul. That's our theme verse for our church, James 1.21. Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. It's able. It doesn't mean it's going to, but it is able to if you'll receive it. But James wrote that to born-again Christians. Born again where? Born again in their spirit. So we get born again in our spirit, but our soul is still a work in progress. Our flesh, our body is irredeemable and has to die one day. That is the seed, the kernel of corn that is sown into the ground and is raised up incorruptible. It's an offering we lay down at the end of our life. We maintain it, we keep it under, but there is zero redemption for your body. You must be given a new body, a glorified body. Until then, the best we have is the, the deliverance from the, the effect of the sin nature. We have victory over sin, and we have the promise of healing. That's all that we have for our body. Deliverance and redemption from the sin nature that's can, contained within our flesh and the promise of healing anytime our body has need of it so we can finish our race. But once this body is done, it doesn't go to heaven. The, this mortal must put on immortality. This corruption must put on incorruption. Hebrews 4.12 further confirms that we are spirit, soul, and body. Let's read this famous passage. 
For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. So that, that includes the body right there. So we see soul, spirit, joints and marrow. Spirit, soul, body. And then it goes and adds this trickier thing, which we won't have time to get into, but it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we are spirit, soul, and body, and yet the word of God discerns our hearts. So the heart is something else. It's part of you. Uh, Just as a brief definition so I can show you that I do have one, your heart is the manifestation of your soul. Your heart is your mind and what it keeps thinking. It's your, your heart is your emotions and what you keep emoting. Your heart is your will and what you keep wanting. And that is your heart. I don't want to get off too much because we don't have time for it, but your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. And we'll look at that here again in a moment. Your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. But just because your soul has a thought doesn't mean that's your heart. I think everybody's been driving down the street and had this weird thought come out of nowhere. And that, that attacks your soul. Bloop. Where did that come from? But just because you thought that doesn't mean that was your heart. So your heart is the manifestation of the operation of your soul. It's what you think and keep on thinking. Like Jesus said, why reason ye in your hearts? It's what you want and keep on wanting in your hearts. Your flesh nature will try to put wants on you all the time. You'll try to want lustful, sensuous things, but if you can suppress that and keep it under, that won't be what defines your heart. And then your emotions. You can be an unstable of heart. You can be tossed to and and fro and driven in your heart. These are things that spike our soul, but if we can bring it into captivity and submit it, it won't define our heart. It won't spike our heart or flavor our heart. I don't have time to go into that. We have a whole curriculum on the heart. I think I need to teach it as a matter of fact. In fact, I think I need to finish writing it first. Man is a spirit. He possesses a soul and he lives in a body. Man is a spirit. You and I, we are spirit. We possess a soul and we live in a body. There's a lot of things I want to say, but I've probably already written them. So let's move on with the lesson. Number one, man is a spirit. You're a spirit being. I'm going to read this verse in Proverbs 20, 27. It says, The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Let's see how right I am. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. I was right. So the spirit of man, that's you, that's the real you, that's the real me. It, according to this verse, and then John chapter 3 or 4 our spirit man dwells in our, be- our belly, and that's the candle of the Lord. That's the light of the Lord searching all the inward parts. That, that's, that's where it dwells, kind of down here in our belly. Jesus said in John 4 and in John chapter 7, if, John chapter 7 specifically, if you thirst, come unto him, and out of your bellies shall flow rivers of living water. That, of course, is a prophecy of the baptism of the Holy Ghost that was yet to happen because Christ has not been crucified and ascended and, and resurrected Having and hadn't sent back the Holy Spirit yet. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord and it searches all the inward parts of us. When people talk about uh, being led by the spirit of God and they'll say, I don't have a good feeling about it. Where they don't have a good feeling about it is always down in their gut. 
just don't feel good about it. Where? Just down here. It wasn't so much in my head, because that's not where your spirit man is. Down here in your gut. I just didn't, just didn't have a feel, good feeling about it. I just felt blah about it. Your spirit man is the real you. God has breathed into all people the breath of life. Genesis 2, 7 says that, and John uh, 1, 9 says that uh, he is the light that lighteth every man. He breathed into all men the breath of life. Let me find John 1, 9 and read it. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That may very well be that spark of light that we discussed previously when uh, an egg is conceived or fertilized by the sperm. Either way, we know that God breathes into every fetus upon conception the breath of life. Even as Jeremiah 1 says, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Hebrew says he's the father of spirits. And so every time an infant is conceived, any time a baby is conceived, there is no life there except that God breathe into that conceived seed the breath of life. What is that breath? That's the spirit. He is the father of spirits. He breathes into that conceived seed the breath of life. And that's what makes that baby a viable person. I like what one pastor, one of my pastors once said, He said, I'm glad God breathed me into the baby that was born in Indiana. He said, but I know if my parents never met, if they never had me, God would have still breathed me into somebody somewhere and I'd be there with the call of God on me there, which I'd never heard that before. But I said, man, that makes sense that even if I wasn't born to my parents, me, the essence of me would have been breathed into another baby somewhere with the calling This just happens to be the DNA package that my parents made. The calling is God made. Perhaps the persona, the disposition, the fruit, that's God made. But the flesh you're looking at looks like a little bit of my mom, a little bit of my dad. My mannerisms are a little bit my mom, a little bit my dad. My accent is is a result of where my mom and dad raised me. But the essence of me, the spirit man, that's all God. The calling to be a pastor is all God. The giftings and the abilities, all God. Because I'm a spirit, and so are you. The breath of life is our spirit, man. We are made in God's image and after his likeness. That's what Genesis 1:26 said. And part of God's image and likeness is spirit. God is a spirit. Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So one of the ways that we're made in his image and likeness is that we are spirit. So one day when we die, if we die before the rapture, our body is laid in the grave and that thing sleepeth, but we are instantly in the presence of God because we're spirit. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The body's laid in the grave to be resurrected in the future. That's when we get our glorified body. But if we die before we get a glorified body, we're still in the presence of God because we're spirit. The, bur- the body, our earth suit, is the only thing that keeps us here in the earth. And that is why you've got to take care of your earth suit, your body. If it goes, you go. If it dies incomplete, your assignment's incomplete. We're also really big around here on teaching on the fruit of self-control. One-third of America is now obese. That's not acceptable. Uh, I just saw another thing that said uh, the... Almost 500,000 people a year are dying because of obesity, and they're realizing much more sickness than that is tied directly to obesity. Obesity is one of the number one ways people are committing suicide. We want Christians to live in self-control. 
God is a spirit and he has made man to be a spirit as well. The New Testament often refers to our spirit man as our inner man. That's the real us, the real man. It's our spirit man. The spirit man is what will live forever. And so when we talk about being born again, we're talking about the spirit of man being born again. The spirit of man is a part of man that must be born again. Your, your soul is not born again. Your soul is renewed. Your soul is saved, according to James 1.21. Your mind is renewed. Your emotions and your will are brought into subjection. But your mind is renewed or renovated. Think like the Lord. The second you get born again, your soul is still the big mess it was the moment before you prayed to receive Christ. And that's where discipleship begins to take into effect. Discipleship is designed to address the soul. And once we get the soul discipled, the flesh begins to follow along. The worst thing you could probably do with a baby Christian is just abandon them and never disciple them or train them how to renew their mind and save their soul. The spirit of man is the part of man that becomes a new creation in Christ Jesus. All people, whether Christian or heathen, non-believers, will live forever because spirits are eternal. So the, really the reality is when we ask folks, are you going to heaven or hell? We're going to ask, what we're really asking them is, are you going to live forever in the presence of God? Or are you going to live forever in the presence of Satan in torment? Because everybody lives forever, but Jesus Christ is the distinguisher. If you receive his salvation, you live forever with God. If you reject salvation through Christ, then you spend forever in hell, torments, and damnation. Born-again spirits go to heaven. Dead spirits must go to hell. I'm going to look at Job 32.8 real quick. The book of Job is one of the poetical books of the Bible. Job 32.8. There is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. I like that. There is a spirit in man. There's only about two or three verses in the Old Testament speaking of the spirit of man that actually refers to this part of man that needs to be born again. I guess I should throw this out there. The word for spirit in the Old Testament Hebrew is ruach, and it's cognate, not cognate, it's, it's, it's brother in Greek is pneuma, where we get pneumatic. Both ruach in the Hebrew and pneuma in the Greek are translated to be breath, air, demon spirit, human spirit, spirit of God. It means spirit or breath or air, but they both also have this other definition, which means mental disposition or fervency or ardor or passion. We would know mental disposition as attitude. So most of the time when you talk about the spirit of man in the old covenant, we're talking about attitude. Where it talks about, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of the Amalekites. Well, it's referring to their attitude. He enticed them. He excited them. He stirred them up. He provoked their attitude against Israel. There's only about, I think, three, maybe four at most verses that refer to the spirit of man in the Old Testament, that is actually referring to the born-again spirit, the breath of life. Why is that, you ask? Because under the Old Covenant, everybody was dead spiritually and could not be alive spiritually until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So then it only makes sense that after the resurrection, the language is heavily emphasizing the spirit of man that dwells on the inside because that's where we're now alive at. All right. 
1 Corinthians 6.20, I'm going to look at that verse real quick. We, we bothered to write these verses down in the curriculum. And you can tell it's been a while since I looked at these. For we, you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Notice when you're born again, your spirit belongs to him, as does your body. Your soul's still a work in progress. You have to present your body, which belongs to God, and your spirit. Submit that to him. And then the other verse is Ephesians 3.16. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. That's our spirit man, the inner man, the real us. Let's look at number two. Man possesses a soul. You've been given a soul, James 1.21. We, we quote that verse a lot because it is our theme verse. Your soul can be further broken down into three parts. Your mind, that's what you think, that's what you process, that's how you reason, that's your calculations, your philosophies, your arguments, your disputations, that's your mind. We get that. Your will, that's your want, that's your drive, that's your desire, and your emotions. There's a lot of emotions, psychologists if you try to Google search all the emotions man has, there's no complete list. Some will have this many number, some will have that many number. Some are positive, some are negative, some are synonymous, some are unique. We know we have emotions. And we're designed to be emotional creatures, but not emotionally in a sinful sense. God is emotional. And every emotion you can think of in you, the Bible already ascribes to God. The joy of the Lord, joy is an emotion. The peace of God, peace is an emotion. God is a jealous God. God is an angry God at times. The wrath of God, the favor of God, mercy of God, these are all emotions. You can grieve God, you can frustrate God. Those are emotional manifestations. So all the emotions we experience are found in God first. Emotions are not sinful, but how we use them and what brings them out of us can make them sinful as first corinthians 13 talks about love does not rejoice at evil but it rejoices when right and truth prevail so rejoicing is an emotion but if you rejoice at evil things that's sinful but if you rejoice when right and truth prevail that's righteous that's glorious when i first started pastoring this church I, I was just, it was a Wednesday night, and I was just kind of telling a little story about coming down the highway and how I had seen a box of dead puppies. And when I said, I was driving down 111, and I saw this box of dead puppies, several people, a bulk of the sanctuary that night, the people said, aww. And they had this aww in their heart about a box load of dead puppies. And it grieved the Spirit of God. And I instantly understood why. I wouldn't have necessarily picked up on it. This is when the Lord really began to teach me about the animal idolatry that is infecting America. And the Lord quickly spoke to me and he gave me the counter argument or the counter example. I said, whoa, whoa, church, you just awed about a box load of dead puppies? Or, or, yeah, a, a, a little box full of dead puppies? What if I had said a box car load full of dead Mexicans on the Mexican border who died of heat stroke? Would you have awed at that? And everybody got real quiet because I think the people realized they wouldn't have been so moved. They probably would have been maybe a little racist about it, maybe a little, well, that's what they get for trying to sneak into our country. Well, whether coming over here illegally is, is justified or not, God is much more concerned about humans dying than he is puppies dying. 
And so in that instance, their sorrow was sinful because they sorrowed for the wrong thing. They sorrowed for puppies but could not find sorrow for human beings. So emotions, you have to make sure you bring them in line with God's proper usage of emotions. Once you become a Christian, you must begin to apply the Bible to your soul. Spirit man's born again, seated in heavenly places, but the soul becomes the main playground of work, became, becomes the main construction site, the soul. That's why we're taught the word. It's why we pray. It's why we bring into captivity every thought because the soul, the soul is like the clutch, if you understand cars. The clutch plate engages the engine to the wheels. Your soul engages your spiritual life to your natural life. And if you don't get your soul fixed, it doesn't matter how much eternal life is in you, you're never going to get it manifested into the natural. So we have to work on the soul. Your soul is your stewardship and responsibility. Just because you are a Christian doesn't mean your mind will think properly or godly. Believe me, I've pastored for over a decade now. I do a lot of teaching and I watch Christians constantly have to fight to keep their soul right with God. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you will always submit to God's will. Jesus taught us the ultimate prayer of consecration. He said, not my will, but your will be done. And just because you're a new creature in Christ Jesus doesn't mean you know how to properly use your emotions as we've already demonstrated. The process of training your mind will and emotions to conform to God's word is what the Bible calls the saving of your soul, the deliverance of your soul, the preservation of your soul. There's a lot more that can be said about that, but this is introductory Christianity 101. You need to know that you have a mind, will, and emotions that must be submitted and disciplined in line with the word of God, in line with his mind, because the Bible says he wants to give you the mind of Christ, in line with his will, not our will, but God's will be done, and with his emotions, that our heart rises to seek him. Our emotions are in line with him. That brings us to number three, the body. This, unfortunately, is what most Christians are overly familiar with. To most Christians, this right here is more real to them than anything else. Dr. Lester Sumrall, actually, I have his quote. I'm already thinking ahead. <laughs> Dr. Lester Sumrall said, Your spirit man should be king, your, sh your soul should be your servant, and your body should be your slave. He said, your spirit man should be king. We live according to the spirit. If we, if, our, if we live in the spirit, we should also walk in the spirit. That's what Galatians 5, 24, 25 says. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Our soul, that's our servant. We don't think unless we need to think. We don't emote unless we need to emote. We don't will unless we need to will. I often teach that your soul, and probably more your mind than anything, that it's like a calculator. It just sits there ready to use, and until you're using it, it does nothing. You can have such peace in your mind. It does not think. It does not daydream. It does not worry. It does not fret. It does do nothing until you tell it, until you turn it on. Christians too often put their body first. Often our bodies are more real to us than our spirit man. One day we will all put off our bodies and pass into eternity. 
You only get one body, so take good care of it. Amen to that. Uh, again, let me, let me add there that you get one body, and we've been given the ninth fruit of the Spirit called self-control. And it is not the will of God that you be obese. Now, I'm not fat-shaming anybody, but you know your body's not designed to be obese, nor are you designed to live in debt. The fruit of self-control will take care of that. Nor are you designed to live in your mind worrying and fretting. The fruit of self-control will take care of mental discipline too. Concerning your body, though, because we're talking about it, if you come to our church long enough, you'll see me ask our church family to make a fist. Put it up against your chest. That is what doctors tell us is the size of our heart. Your heart is approximately the size of your fist. And we all have roughly the same size hand. I know there's some variance, but within 10 or 15%. But our bodies vary way more in size than 10 or 15%. The point is, your heart is not designed to carry the strain of obesity. And so you only get one body. And I'm a stickler for this, not because I'm a skinny athletic guy, because I have to work to stay skinny and athletic. I'm in my 40s now. I have to work at this. But I'm a stickler for this because I've lost too many precious church members to early death due to obesity and obesity-related sickness and disease because they refused to bring into captivity appetites, desires, and lusts, and they refused to discipline their flesh. The doctrine of self-control is the crux of our Christian lifestyle. You cannot be holy without self-control. You cannot escape lust without self-control. You cannot escape cigarettes, porn, greed, animosity, anger without self-control. So self-control is a powerful fruit that we as Christians must apply, especially to our bodies. Paul said in Romans 7, I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. He wasn't talking about demons. He was talking about the sin nature that abode yet in his flesh. And let me throw this out there. It's not in your curriculum, but it's truth. There are two words used in the Greek New Testament to describe your body. One is sarx, which is translated flesh, and the other is soma, translated body. Sarx can mean sin nature or, or sinful flesh or just flesh, Soma always means biology, not the Greek word bios, where we get biology, but bios is in the organs, the cells, the blood, the bone, etc. But within the bios, within the soma of the, the body, is contained the sarks. That is the sin nature. That is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ has broken off of you. You are no longer bound to sarks. You have sarks, the sin nature, but you don't have to live according to its whims. But here's the funky thing. Sarks is such a spiritual concept that even if we gave you a body transplant, as long as you're in the earth, you still have sarks to contend with. So think about this. Let's say through modern technology, we could replace all your skeleton with robotic skeletons. We're probably not too far from that. And assuming you have a robotic skeleton, now you don't really need skin, we could really just give you robotic legs, robotic arms. Your hips uh, would be robotic. Your spine might be robotic. We know we can give you a prosthetic heart. We could keep you alive through dialysis. We could almost completely eliminate most soma or most bios, most flesh, so there would only be a little bit of blood left to run through your brain because you have to have a brain or run through your eyes. 
and run through your lungs. And yet, if you are down to a fifth of biology, a fifth of your soma mass, you would still have sarks. You'd still have a sin nature. And with that sin nature, your hands would still want to commit sin. Your feet, your robotic feet, would still be swift to shed innocent blood because it's a spiritual concept. This is part of our body. We have to bring it into captivity. And that is why one day we must lay it off permanently and be given a glorified body. As Christians, our bodies now belong to God because they are the temple of his Holy Spirit. He dwells in us. Therefore, our body is not ours to use as we please. In fact, uh, 1 Corinthians talks about fornication is the only sin that man sins against his own personal self. Wow. And 1 Corinthians uh, 3, 16 says, Know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Ghost, excuse me, the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Notice, don't destroy or defile your body. It's the temple of God. And God promises he shall destroy whoever destroys his temple. Take care of your body. Don't break it down. We should present our bodies to him as he sees fit, for that's our reasonable use. Romans 12, 1 says, Therefore, my brethren, present your bodies under God, a holy sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. We must work to keep our body and its desires under. Our bodies contain the sin nature with all of its evil appetites. If we feed the evil appetites, we will develop a monster. If we starve the evil appetites, we will succeed in suppressing the same monster. Whatever you feed will grow. If you feed your flesh, it'll grow. If you feed your faith, it'll grow. If you feed doubt, it'll grow. If you feed bitterness, it'll grow. If you feed your spirit man, it'll grow. If you feed your walk with God, it'll grow. If you feed your flesh, it'll grow too. And maybe grow so big you need a bigger coffin to be lowered into the ground. I adjure, I adjure thee by God, keep your flesh under, renew your mind, work in the scriptures to save your soul so that you can present your bodies a living sacrifice, so you can finish your race, so that you can hear the Lord Jesus say one day, well done, my good and faithful servant. Amen. Father, we thank you for this lesson on our bodies and our creation. I pray that the listener, the student has been blessed. I thank you for blessing all of our church members and anyone joining our church through these courses. Bless your word as it changes people's lives. In Jesus' name, amen.